This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. And this is Richard. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of finding yourself in the middle of an immense landscape and not knowing where you are. But wait, we've got this thing. They're called maps. How do you fold this thing, Martha? <laughs> this week we're talking about how maps can be used in your game uh, for, you know, not just the obvious reasons, okay, but also, you know, as a means of driving uh, the story, as a means of discovering new locations, the things of informing the GM about how areas interact with each other. Um, important things. Fringeworthy, a unique trait shared by so few, a gift or a curse to those that can transit a portal accessing the extra-dimensional network, a pathway to a million million portals to a million million other worlds, worlds filled with terrible wonder or shocking beauty, populated by denizens other than human and motivated by their own values, a creation of a race so advanced the physical laws of the universe became not barriers to their own creative drives. Will you shoulder this burden and step onto the paths for your world? Adventure in the million million worlds of Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy is a role-playing game by TriTech Games. Available at TriTechGames.com. Come explore the worlds of TriTech Games. Explore the worlds of Fringeworthy. Oh, speaking of alternate uh, alternate Earths. I have a sad, one sad message to add. The man who did 1901 uh, Castro's Bomb and uh, Robert Conroy, who lived actually real close up to me here, he passed away. Mm. He was as good as Turtle Dove. He was older and uh, he had retired. I just missed him at Worldcon. I got one book somebody got signed for me. October, I went to a convention and they said, nope, he had just died. So we lost one of the one of the alternate dimensional uh, greats for books. Uh, what about resource maps? Not only like where is the gold, where is the copper, where is the uh, coal, and other things, but how far under the ground is it? If they're close to alternate Earths, it's going to be a bonanza for Earth for oil, you know, oil drilling and. Uh, you know, oh, there's six different worlds. We can we can pull oil from every one of them, and there's gonna be, it's gonna totally disrupt the economies of the world. Are you talking about disrupting the economy of the world which you're pulling the stuff out of? There are empty worlds that have the same general geography. So you're talking about Earth Prime, right? Before Earth Prime, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, yes, you, you have to you know back to Earth. That's not always easy. You know, they they don't necessarily have some great stuff right next to the portals. We have seven or eight Sutter's uh, the uh, streams for Sutter's Mill. What happens? We can pull more gold out of there than anybody can imagine. So what happens to the price of gold? Well, that's why we've always said that Earth Prime doesn't let any of those resources come back to Earth. Yeah. Well, if we know... Every- ever knew the truth about De Beers, it would it would have been die bye-bye a long time ago. Diamonds are far more common than anybody even realizes. Oh, I don't think anybody doesn't know that. We can, we can oh, now yeah. make perfect diamonds. Perfect diamonds don't sell because everyone knows they're fake. 
Actually, the, uh, I was reading up about it. Actually, uh, there are some rare diamonds. Some of the colored diamonds are very rare. Uh, in fact, the rarest is our pink diamonds. They're so rare that they're, they actually will be worth, I think, they'll be worth actually having a pink diamond. The trouble is they go for lots and lots of money because they are so rare. And just recently, John, I saw an entire a, uh, documentary on that, and they can make pink snow. They have to. The De Beers has had to build special equipment to tell that they were too perfect, with the, with all the diamonds that were coming onto the market, and uh, they actually fought, they actually made machines, uh, and that can scan a diamond and say, nope, this is a man-made. The same with scanning gold for uh, for uh, for um, what do you call it for uh, cores, isotopes, and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, because the uh, there's so much so much gold with uh, tungsten cores coming in to the U.S. Basically, gold you know br- small gold bricks for collectors, and uh, turns out the inside is entirely tungsten. Didn't they learn anything from Archimedes? Oh, <laughs> uh, and displacement. Yeah, it weighs about the same. I don't know. Does it displace more? Yeah. Oh, and the problem is tungsten is about the same as gold. It's so close, you can't tell. And uh, so the people who are bringing it in and selling it, basically the criminal element, they're, they're, they were doing really well, but they had to build machinery to our electronics to be able to detect if it's gold or it's got a tungsten core. Resources, yeah, you oil fields. Uh, you Actually, all the copper that's in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, is, all the stuff is surface copper. You know, you can definitely you know get get that, and all the and basically all the easy to get resources like all, all those Roman mines were easy to get uh, Roman mines. They were easy to get to. You know, they didn't have to go down ha- you know half a mile. And if it's an empty world or a destroyed world, who gives a d- about the uh, you know, about the environment? You can take anything you want from it. Well, there's a story because some people are giving a dang about it. That's when the problems. Yeah. <laughs> what happens when you when you have a dead world and uh, something that's uh, cataclysmic? There's no humans left. There's the um, the animals are virtually extinct, and uh, nothing is nothing is uncommon. All right. Well, back to what I was talking about with the uh, resource maps. Knowing how far down or what kinds of surrounding strata these kind of resources in can make a big difference because a lot of uh, Technology is necessary for really for stuff that's surprisingly not that far down. Uh, you know the the maps. You know we we hear a lot about John. You're talking about the maps, uh, not the maps. Sorry, the mines, the uh, the Roman mines, and how they were so tiny, but they didn't go very far. A lot of mines that were basically considered to be played out later on were found to have a lot more resources because all of a sudden they had things like explosives, they had really good they had modern mining equipment, and they were able to uncover large new uh, uh, veins of ore that would then therefore you know make the mine very profitable again. Pumps. Pumps can help if, if you're having water problems. Yeah. That was the main. That was one of the main problems with the coal mines in England was that they were always being flooded because they're all were below the water level of the Atlantic Ocean. So the only way to make it mineable was to pump them out. And yeah, with the invention of the steam-powered pump, that those resources were now available. 
Well, again, that, those are unexpected things. But yeah, but uh, most of the time, like I say, you come into an area and you know that there's all these resources there. This is especially useful in um, post-apocalyptic type worlds because they may, depending upon what the post, the apocalypse was, they may not have been aware of some of the resources that are there, and you might be able to help them actually recover much faster because all of a sudden they find out that hey, that hillside over there actually connects to a significant. Uh, cave system or even it has materials that you could mine out and use to trade with your neighbors and you could then use the mines themselves as uh, a defensible uh, structure to live in after you cheated your neighbors no <laughs> well if that happens yeah. yeah that happens yeah and and all the neighbors go they're hidden in the mine get the dynamite we're gonna close that mine up <laughs> uh, water you know, aquifers, you know where the aqua. You, you know we have a very good idea where a lot of the aquifers are now, and where the best place to d- either dig or drill for them. So that's another way to get make sure you know you can you can need potable water and rain barrels are not going to help you a, a whole lot when you, when you if you're if you're actually a growing community. So knowing where the potable water is, also agricultural maps as to what grows the best in what areas. Archaeological maps and say, okay, I want to. You know, where were you know? What was here? You know, you you pick a point like down in Yucatan. You, you know, we we they're now better at mapping out all the various Mayan cities, which they were ritual cities. People actually didn't live in the cities; they lived around the cities. The cities themselves were just rich look, ritual locations, but still, it sounds like New York. Well, yeah, but but they're finding out how. Many people. There are there are probably a couple million people living in Yucatan at its height. You know, in fact, it may even it may even rival portions of Europe at the, at the at the time because they actually had a very uh, from of course again doing the ground doing infrared and ground parenting radar. They had a very fruitful and very productive uh, agricultural system that unfortunately was very drought sensitive. So first drought they hit. Well. They've just recently found in the Patagonia, and nobody knows quite again who did it, but there are thousands of foundations. There are whole cities that are basically windswept and flattened out, yep. and uh, no, nobody knows who, who the, who's these people were. In the middle of the, of the Amazon, there is ruins of a major civilization, of which there's only a few remnants left out in there of, of, of locals, and they basically said was, this one friar had visited these places. They were just massive places, and they were, you know, it may have been part of the legends of El Dorado. Trouble is, he brought he brought along with him a little friend. Smallpox. Smallpox. Yeah. And when, when later expeditions came back, there was no one there. He more or less wiped out, you know, several hundred thousand, maybe close to a million people with his smallpox. But you know, again, we're drifting again. <laughs> uh, oh, well, actually, um, it, you know, we were talking about you know combat maps and so forth. This is actually sort of a little bailiwick of mine because I've seen this too many times in, in commercially available maps you can buy, uh, and this is scale. And the uh, and I actually scale is actually important both for indoor and outdoor maps and what you're using for scale. 
Typically, when I do an outdoor map, I do it based on how far a person can travel. So one square, maybe, or one hex is a day's travel. And that's tempered by how fast you can do it, or at least the terrain. So if, you know, if you're in a uh, Muscovy going through a forest, yeah, 20 miles, 40 miles in a day, because there is no roads, and unless you have a big open area, uh, you're not going to get very far in a day. In a, in a forest area in a Muscovy, unless you, uh, you know. If it's a thin forest, is, is it a heavy forest? That That's the whole, everything depends on what your tree density and, you know, basically hitting swamps. Yep. Yeah, but the problem about doing that, John, is that you end up with a maps with different size hexes on them. Well, no, all the maps are the same hexes. They just simply are, you're right, they're, they're different scales. So one map may be 20, one hex may be 20 miles. Another map may be 100 miles because it's open terrain. Yeah, I'm saying that's fine as long as you don't have them abutting each other. But wouldn't that be really confusing to read? Uh, or would it, would it still work if you did that? If, let's, let's say you had, you had planes and that was one hex size, but then the next one was mountains. So you should make like a quarter of the size uh, of a hex there. Is, is that the way you'd go with this? Oh, actually, what I usually go with is I'll go with the, the one that's most difficult to go through. So like you said, heavy forest would be most difficult to go through. And then basically everything else is okay. This is a, this color square hex. I look at my little key. Two of those is one day, you know. And this, so these are three of these are one day, and four of these is one day. So yeah, basically, I, I work it out that way. But I usually base it on the hard. What's going to be the worst for them to travel through in terms of, of terrain and so forth, and then that determines the scale for the map at that point. So if one day's travel through a heavy forest or through rocky terrain is 20 miles, and then it's 20 miles per hex. And I just sort of remember that and remember when you get out of the forest, they can you know really book it and go maybe at 200 miles in one day. I mean, in a lot of cases, I, it's usually it's, it's walking. You know, I, I actually do this for more for games where you have to walk. So uh, usually walking doesn't matter what the terrain really is, except for unless it's mountainous. So for most walking maps, it's pretty much how far you can walk in one day which I think is 50 miles uh, for the most part, if, if you're unencumbered. Because I know that that's what the Army would, would would march you every day. You can march 50 miles in full gear in one day. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. I barely made it across Gen Con. <laughs> okay, if you're in good health. <laughs> but, uh, and, and, and fully working limbs, my good man, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, but yeah, because the average gait for a person is about what two miles an hour. So a person walks about two miles an hour, and especially when they're carrying a backpack. See, you know, a lot of people they don't uh, appreciate the uh, the effect. Of, but I wouldn't say that's true because as a boy scout, you know, I mean, we're we're going on uh, on trails as scouts. Man, we're we're booking. We're I'd say we're doing at least three miles an hour. Yeah, I mean we're we are carrying uh, thirty to uh, to fifty pound packs too, so it just kind of depends on whether you have some place to go. If you're exploring, I can imagine you actually it takes it takes longer to cover that terrain. If you're if you're basically just exploring and determining where you are, yeah. If you're well, if you're wandering around sightseeing, then yes, much slower. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. You may may spend an entire day in one hex. 
Well, you should. In my game, we gave bonuses to people who actually would take the time to do a proper biological survey of a hex. You know, and, and that way they, they could send that information off and people get some idea. Sometimes you could use that to locate where you were in the world. Because if it is a close analog to Earth and it has the same indigenous species, plant life and animal life and everything else, you could actually identify where on the world you were without even using a compass, just by taking a, a proper survey of what was in the hex. Yep, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you you at least be within a, I would say uh, when uh, at least a hundred miles of where you where you sh- where you are because you know unless of course you're in some really radical ch- changing terrain and, and climates, but yeah, you can put you within a, I would say a hundred miles of where where you are if you really if you got a botanist with you that puts you in uh, they could actually if botanists can go I know this plant this plant and this plant and put you within maybe twenty miles of where you should be based on what plants are available. Right. Well, the important thing was, you said, when you came through the portal, you don't know where you are. You know, you might be able to use a, uh, an astrolabe to figure out what your uh, latitude is, but you wouldn't know where, you know, you, you were. And so things like this, where if you assume this, the, the same kind of, uh, of biologics are going to be in effect in the world, uh, assuming, of course, that there's not a big change in geography, then this would help you identify exactly where you are. So you said, no, I'm not in South America. I'm in North America, or I'm, I actually am in China because, you know, that kind of grass, that kind of sage, uh, those, uh, uh, those bugs, they don't live in America. The guy with the tin hat and the spear. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> that, too, might be an indicator, sure. Generally speaking, I like to figure out where I am before I run in to the local natives. <laughs> yeah. But that does bring a point there, what Richard pointed out there, is that changing scale. So maybe you, okay, that you have a little hex on your map, and this is where they are. They encounter something or somebody. Now you go to the combat map. And this is where you, know, you can either have predetermined or – I actually, I have I have a lot of different maps. I have, There's a – uh, there's these little cardstock maps you can buy. I don't remember the name of them right off my head right now, but they're little. Uh, they're actually designed for the Pathfinder uh, folks make them, I believe. And you can build yourself a quick forest at that point, if you need to, or a quick plane or something like that, or even a quick little village if you need to, using those cards. Um, and then there you you're at, at what I consider combat scale, and, and depending on the game. Uh, if you're in D20, it's going to be one one uh, one inch is five feet. If you're in Savage Worlds, it's one inch is six is six feet. Uh, it's it's close enough that I don't you know I can use, I think I use the same map for both of those. Um, and yeah, you switch down to your combat map, and now you take it, or at least your encounter map. I don't want to use combat. This is more like your encounter map, so you can determine what's going on. Um, you like I said, you also can use like sheets of cardboard to create that fog of war, so you don't know what's really behind that building there because you can't see it. And there are online tools. Uh, roll uh, roll twenty has mapping tools. You, you can you can actually bring in a map that you've either made or bought or made or whatever got a hold of, and you can bring it in so the background. Then you can then draw in the buildings with tools so that they actually will block the vision behind. Behind it, using the fog of war layer on the in, in the software, so people can only see yes, they only see what what they could see from their position, and it is and it is actually a player 
player sanctuary. So if you have four players using this thing in their different places, they see four different things, which I find is great because, you know, uh, 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 for at least determining line of sight. Um, but, but this is where I said I had a little bugaboo, a little, little tick. It's interiors. I, I, I guess I, I remember buy, buying, I've actually got a lot of maps for like modern, modern days, like a lot of interiors, apartments and so forth and various buildings. And I've began to notice on some of the maps, the, the chairs, the tables tend to fill up the entire square. And that made me stop for a second going, that means that chair is five foot wide. It's a chair, but it's five foot wide. And five foot deep. <laughs> that table is twenty feet long by ten foot. <laughs> you can tell looking at it, when the guy didn't map, he didn't realize the scale, and he didn't properly adjust the scale of this of the of the items. So they they filled the they filled the they filled the square. Uh, a lot of guys are getting better. Uh, the folks who make the drama escape maps, he actually decided instead of drawing everything smaller, he just changed the map scale to three feet per inch. And everything fits at that point. I mean, that's sort of scale I use. I remember on uh, there's a uh, Google Plus group on map making games, and a guy shared his map of a, of an inn, and I asked him what the scale was. It was oh five foot per inch, and I said, "You realize that means your bar is a hundred feet long, not the building. The bar <laughs> was a hundred feet long. The building itself was a hundred and fifty feet long." <laughs> I'm going. That's one hell of a bar, <laughs> one hell of a tavern. That's built bigger than that's bigger than most castles. Uh, <laughs> it's getting your and it's getting your scale right. Uh, I mean, you know, you can do that yourself. If you if you if you ever want to do a map for interior, get yourself a folding ruler and open it up and lay out a five foot square. You see how big that is. You know. Oh. You know, and I, I've used my, I have a folding ruler I got from my dad. So I, you know, I said, okay, what's a three foot square look like? And it's actually fairly reasonable for the move in. And I know some folks are saying, we got to use a five foot square for combat. And I say, I used to LARP. I'll, I will admit to LARPing in the past. And I remember one combat, uh, one, one, one of the folks on my side, it was this, this was an uh, amped guard. It was a uh, sort of a SCA. Uh, light version uh, of, of of combat between two forces, and I had my back to the other guy. He was fighting somebody in front of him. I was fighting someone in front of him. We were occupying, I think, a total of maybe seven feet, <laughs> which in most games says you can't do that because because you, you're because that because you can't occupy the same square. But we were in more or less one square at that point in, during our combat. <laughs> so don't tell me you need you need five freaking feet to fight in you can fight in as little as three feet i mean if you look at a pike uh, a bunch of pikemen they're shoulder to shoulder with their pikes <laughs> and the yeah. reality should be a two foot by two foot square which is about yeah. average for mm -hmm. well a three foot gives you some arm room some leeway but yeah either two and a half feet to three foot it's about right for i if you want a realistic scale but most games don't have that. Like I said, Savage Worlds is six is uh, two yards, six feet per inch. Uh, D uh, uh, D twenty modern is an OGL is five foot. I'm not sure what what five e what, what the f uh, five is. It might be still be the five foot squares, I believe, 
I don't remember them changing that much. So it's probably still five foot per square. But I, of course, I remember back in the days of D, uh, D&D, original D&D, where there were 10 foot squares. <laughs> you know. And I remember looking at some of my old maps. I, found, I have an old map of mine. I'm looking at it going, I drew that chair to fill the map, fill that square, didn't I? <laughs> that's, that's a giant's chair. <laughs> oh. And the doors are 10 foot wide. Oh, that was bad. But there are a lot of good map sources out there uh, you can, that you can adapt. You know, you can you can definitely build a city with with, with, uh, you know, with with maps for every floor of every building if you want to out there with the commercially available maps. Well, the, well one of the best cities I've ever seen the TSR published was Lankmar. Lankmar was wonderful. It just, and you had squares you could rotate all over the city, and it changed the entire pattern of the city. It's uh, inserts, and uh, but Lankmar was was beautifully drawn. Like the Judges Guild too, uh, Modron, Teagle Manor, the uh, the city state of the Overlord. You know, even though they were larger maps, some of the smaller maps were marvelous. Oh yeah, uh, Judge Guilds also did a lot of uh, mapping uh, add-ons for various games. I remember their their uh, traveler add-ons they did had done uh, the the spaceport spaceport one. Yeah, but those are like uh, those were, were I would say never say were combat maps. Those those are more like here's where things are maps. You know, here's a city map. They they also did spaceship maps, and uh, I I actually got to see, but they never published it. One called Titanic Two. A giant star freighter damaged in, or, you know, in the orbit of the planet, or a star liner. Pardon me. I can give you uh, at least one better for this, at least historical uh, company out there. Blueprints is they they do uh, maps. They did the LZ one, the airship. Okay. Basically, you know, down to all the cabins and where where tables are. Of course, their scale was five foot per inch, and I'm seeing five foot wide card tables. Uh, <laughs> So what what time period was this LZ one current to John? Oh, uh, uh, pulp, pulp era. So nineteen thirties. Yep, nineteen thirties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the LZ one, I think, was the British was no was uh, one of the predecessor, uh, predecessors to, the, to Hindenburg. My friend Alan had uh, has an exact scale. I think he did it one inch to uh, what uh, five feet of the Eldridge, the Eldridge, the Bermuda Triangle boat that disappeared. He keeps running Cthulhu games on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, that's something that looks for, too. I mean, there's our, uh, there, there's a dictionary of imaginary places, and there's a fellow who's busy mapping that place, so you can actually see where all the imaginary places are. Yeah, I saw that. You know? That was that was kind of interesting, though. It, it's, you know... Okay, I mean, it doesn't... It, there's, I mean, literally, it's a it's a number on a part of, of, of a world map, I mean, and there's a few extra parts added to the world map uh and it's you know and it's as a little description down at the bottom so uh i wasn't too impressed with the one that they said for in the atlanta area it was fun to look at okay it's, it's all i can say I, I wasn't really inspired by it but you know hey yeah well this guy this guy's infamous in the alternate history uh groups for doing maps of various places i mean he's even did some he's even got a map that i, could, I am going to talk to him about adapting for victorian earth because it's basically based on the Victorian Earth I, in my original game I ran. And it pre- matches pretty close to what Victorian Earth and Stringer they should look like. 
So I'm going to talk to him about maybe getting permissions to use it or at least adapt it for the uh, for the game. Uh, it's a geopolitical map, and it, you know, lists and lists places and things and where things are that yeah we would never think about, you know. <laughs> Because uh, he, he when he does a geopolitical map, he sits there and says, "Okay, what would change? What would be the same?" And even though I mean this 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 was mentioned, this also would change. This would change as well, and this would be different. And it's wonder it's wonderful. Uh, he even did he even did Michigan Earth. If you, if you remember that, because that actually was another one of my worlds I did in in my uh, online game I ran, and he did Michigan Earth, and uh, how that thing how that place is broken up. So. I can't remember the, yeah, that's already included in one of the portal books, Michigan Earth. Well, there's a map for it. Maps are visual and give more credence to the game. Yeah, and people love making maps. I mean, it's, it's, uh, every GM loves to make maps. Uh, maybe sometimes they may love it too much. <laughs> oh, yes, we're all guilty of that. I belong to a group in Google Plus where we all we do is just make maps and we just share amongst themselves. So you, that just tells you how far the sickness goes. Uh, <laughs> there's even a topic called five minute maps where a group where basically the goal is to suggest a topic, give yourself five minutes, make a map. <laughs> That's very cute. So maps provide important direction in an RPG, not just how to get from one place to another. They provide an accounting of resources so that all players can make good decisions and choose new tactics when joining a community. A town that is on poor land but has rich mineral resources can become a boon town. A town without trees or water but with a, a strong steady wind can turn windmills and supply not only electricity but run fabrication factories and grind other people's grain. Players suffer from when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail mentality, unless you give them a rich toolkit of information. Maps provide tactical information for defense and attack. The Appalachian Mountains are full of caves and subterranean passages. A knowledgeable player can use this to provide shelter for non-combatants, fallback points for armed forces, even the ability to pass right under and into an impregnable fortress. A good topographical map can show ways to improve road systems, ways to avoid floodplains, high ground for combat, defense, or observation. A technological map shows how the surrounding hexes compare to the hex of interest. Failing communities can destabilize the ones they are near as people grow more desperate and begin to prey on their wealthier neighbors. Many have surplus resources that can be traded to improve both communities. If the central hex is the most advanced, its surrounding hexes can act as buffers and defense if they share with them. In a post-apocalyptic world, knowing where to scavenge may be a better solution than attacking a defended stockpile. Political maps can show unexpected allies or threats. It can show if a territory can remain neutral or must choose a side to ally with. A country between two threatening countries can turn the tables by making an ally of the country on the other side of one of those. Now the aggressors are between two strong forces, a Mexican standoff. So providing good maps to players informs them of their options to play. The adventure can start as a simple scouting mission and grow to be one of civilization building on a grand scale. 
but only if you can win the minds of the players and let them think truly big. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll make good use of this roadmap, however it twisted and turned, and we'll have a new destination for you next week. But until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker. You best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, We'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.